It is so wonderful to see um, each and every one of you here this morning. Um, I recognize that when we are keeping our summer rhythms and we're in and we're out of town, that a Sunday like this where it is misty and dewy and the birds are chirping and you've got like cold brew in the uh, refrigerator that it would be so easy to carve out space on St. Mattress Cathedral and to decide uh, to do worship um, at home, which is not a problem because even at home you can still lean into worship and yet you are here. And um, I say this often at the Southeast Raleigh tables that we should never take it for granted um, our physical presence in this space because we get to do worshipful work together. You never know how you're singing or you're praying, how um, even the ways in which you might respond to something in real time might be a means of grace to someone else around you. And so for showing up this morning, it's not just simply that you were able to kind of like push through, um, but that instead um, might we see it as the spiritual discipline of being with that we're choosing to do worshipful work with one another um, this morning. And so I'm so grateful for your presence um, among us. We are in a sermon series called B, B-E, not B-E-E, where basically we're going to talk about um, some of the characteristics that we can take on in regards to spiritual practices and also the, the mighty acts of God um, as proclaimed either through Jesus's ministries and the gospels, the ways in which God be for us, uh, but also to the ways in which we be in the world. And you might have noticed over the course of the last couple of weeks that there has been this rhythm where one Sunday we might anchor ourselves in a passage of scripture where we talk about like how God is at work in the world. And then we might anchor ourselves in a passage of scripture where we might be commissioned or we recognize how we need to be at work in the world. I want to say something though. On the Sundays when we talk about how we need to be at work in the world, do not take this as like some invitation into like a spiritual individualism. Like, oh my gosh, this is how we're going to show ourselves as the, the morally and the spiritually strong. Whenever there is an invitation for us to be um, commissioned or be at work in the world, we never think of our work only bound up in our human capacity, never apart from how God is also at work in us and also through us, how we are empowered by a God who creates and recreates, how we are woven into Christ's mighty acts of salvation and initiated into Christ's story, how our work is empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I want to start with the end at the beginning with our be, because this morning we're going to talk about what does it look like to be a neighbor. For in our lives, our human lives, what does it look like for us to be a neighbor? But as you hear the scripture, and also too, as I lean into the reflection, into the sermon this morning, hold on to be a neighbor, <laughs> but marry it always to what are the ways in which God has been like a neighbor to you? How has God shown up for you? How has God cared for you? How has God shown compassion to you? How has God uh, uh, released goodness in your life? So as you're thinking about what does it look like for you, for me to be a neighbor, hold on to the ways in which God has been a neighbor to us and how God has drawn near to us. Hear now these words from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is a pretty familiar passage of scripture, oftentimes known as the story of the Good Samaritan. But I might invite you to hear these words with new ears this morning. And it says this in verse 25. Just then, 
A lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, he said. And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Probably the greatest icon in the American context that um, helps us to understand or to think about what it looks like to be a neighbor is the cardigan-wearing Mr. Rogers. If you just say Mr. Rogers, who really is in many ways kind of like a household name for many of us, um, people will automatically talk about the ways in which he helped us to understand neighbors and neighborhoods. Now, if you watched Mr. Rogers' neighborhood with a very careful eye, taking into consideration that within the construct of the world that we live in, that oftentimes wants us to believe that being a neighbor just simply looks like being in proximity to another person in regards to your home or maybe someone you know, you will recognize that Mr. Rogers actually was disrupting that type of notion, that domestic notion of what it looks like to be a neighbor. Because on um, that show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it wasn't just simply about the folks who lived in Mr. Rogers' town, but it was the type of relationships that they had with one another. There are particular episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where he is um, in conversation with people, where he is uh, affirming or encouraging people, where people are affirming and encouraging Mr. Rogers that in that day and time, it would have been a disruption in how we would understand the limits of those types of relationships. So when you watch Mr. Rogers and you think about some of the limits that we think or that we place upon what it looks like to be a neighbor, just simply thinking it's about proximity and not actually having intimacy or relationship with others, all of a sudden hearing that question, won't you be my neighbor, hits a little differently. 
Because we do live in a world that oftentimes would rather us ask the question, can I be your neighbor? Or why should I be a neighbor to you, to them? Or can they be a neighbor to me? But with, beyond the context of Mr. Rogers, there's also this biblical text that kind of offers a beautiful critique for us this morning about what does it mean for us to be neighbors or to be neighborly with one another. Beyond the, the story in the Gospels about the prodigal son, which is basically the story of a son who goes and squanders his father's um, money and then comes back and is welcomed with a, a grand party. Beyond that particular story, many individuals believe that the story of the Good Samaritan, which is oftentimes even reflected in art and in mainstream culture, is probably the most well-known gospel story, even for those who may not consider themselves to be people of faith or uh, in the church. Like folks will say when they've done a really beautiful thing or someone has done a really great thing to them, oh my gosh, they were a good Samaritan and they may not know where the story is in scripture. It's very, very well known. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that um, we all have this sense that there is, you know, this person, this Samaritan who did a, a beautiful and a good thing. The, the, the tension in the way in which we might kind of have learned this story in mainstream culture is that it sometimes flattens the nuance that's in this story, like all of the things that are actually happening that we might want to pay attention to. So I want to share the arc of this particular story and then tell us, based off of how um, the Good Samaritan shows up and gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be a neighbor, how we can be a neighbor. But first, I want us to hear the story. It says that there is a lawyer who stands up and tests Jesus. Now, see, th this is the thing, friends. When you start off like that, <laughs> you know, this person stands up and they want to test Jesus. We already know this story is going to take a couple of interesting turns. So he stands up, he tests Jesus, and he asks this question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, I love how Jesus moves in the world because Jesus basically asks the man two questions. Instead of answering the question, Jesus is like, <laughs> well, what is written in the law? So what does the law say? Can you tell me what is written there? And the lawyer responds with these words, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's um, the thing about uh, this lawyer reciting these words. The words that the lawyer is reciting is something that the lawyer would have prayed every single day. It was called the Shema. So every child who was growing up in the Jewish tradition or kind of uh, who was an ancient Israelite would have learned the Shema. Listen, O Lord, my God, you shall love the Lord your God with uh, all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is something that this lawyer who's asking the question about inheriting uh, eternal life would have said daily. And those in his community would have also said these words daily. Which is why you wanna ask yourself, why then are you testing Jesus and asking Jesus what do you need to do to inherit eternal life when these are the words you say every single day that connect you to the law. Are you tracking with me here, friends? <laughs> Jesus says to the lawyer, yes. That is the correct answer. Do that. And then friends, do you have people like this in your life? 
The lawyer then asks him another question to justify himself. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Can't leave it alone. <laughs> I have some uncles like that. Can't leave it alone. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. Doesn't respond, but tells a parable, which is also a means of saying, oh, you're going to learn today. <laughs> like, I'm going to help you to understand. He tells the story of a man who was taking a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while he is going to Jericho, he is accosted by robbers. And they take everything that he has, and they beat him physically, and they leave him half dead. It then says that there are two individuals, a Levite and a priest, who pass by. And they see this man who might be in a, in a, in a, in a pretty desperate state. But when they um, see the man, they, they cross over, they pass by on the other side. But then there's this man who is known as the Good Samaritan or the Samaritan who sees this man. And it says, and he draws near to him. He bandages his wounds, places oil and wine on them, places the man on his animal, takes this man to, the, to an inn, makes sure that the man is able to be taken care of at the inn so that he, um, so that he might be well. And Jesus, after telling the story, then asks the lawyer now of um, these individuals, who was the neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who shows this man who had been hurt and harmed mercy. He's the one who's the neighbor. And then Jesus ends with the word, go and do likewise. We are very familiar, well, I will say this, many of us are very familiar with this story. But oftentimes this story is flattened to simply be a, the Levite and the priest versus the Samaritan, or the religious leaders versus the outsider, or, or these folks who um, kind of represent the clergy and this person who is like the laity. We almost uh, 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 like to tell this story in regards to like, this person did this wonderful thing and these other people didn't do these other things. And while there's, you know, some, some reality of that in this particular story, there's a lot more that's going on that I want us to hold on to. One is this person who was taking a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was harmed. That is sometimes a reminder to us that there are dangerous situations and circumstances in life. That there are individuals among us who are harmed and hurt when they're doing things that just seem so ordinary and normal we understand this. We know this if you watch the news. What does it look like to sympathize with those who find themselves in dangerous situations? Or maybe the Levite and the priest who passed by on the other side were wondering if still that threat of danger was there. And they were worried about their own well-being. And in an act of survival, began to protect themselves. Maybe there's a means of us being a little bit sympathetic to the Levite and also to the priest. Or just to simply watch what the Good Samaritan does in this passage. 
What is it about how this man shows up for this other man who has been harmed or hurt that Jesus would say, I want you to go and do likewise? So there are three things, friends. This is such a simple sermon this morning. There are three things that I want us to pay attention to in regard to the Good Samaritan. That it's not a us against them, look what I do for people, and look what other people are not doing for people, but to say, I just really want to just do a, a, a close analysis of the way in which the Good Samaritan showed up for this man who had been harmed. The first is that it says that the Good Samaritan came near to the man who was hurting. He draws near. He sees his pain up close and personal. Not from afar, but when he recognizes that he is in trouble, he actually places himself proximate to the trouble, proximate to this other person's body, proximate to this other person's situation. And what's also really interesting is that Samaritans in that day were actually considered those who needed to be kept at arm's length. So the fact that the Samaritan was able to turn down the volume on the voice that says, you know what, people don't want me near them. Or, or maybe I've been told all of my life that there's nothing good that can come out of Samaria. But he also crosses some borders within, barriers within himself and says, I'm going to draw near to the pain of others. In this act of us being good neighbors, we too are going to have to draw near. Sometimes be proximate to people, not keeping their situations at arm's length or at news length, but instead also to taking the risk to be proximate. The second is that this good Samaritan begins to bandage the wounds and pour oil and wine on this man's pain. He holds pain with the man. He holds pain with the man. Now, he could have said, ooh, that looks bad. That's very different than, ooh, that looks bad. And I'm going to somehow kind of be attentive to your wounds. Now, in this case, he touches this, you know, he touches this man. There, there are going to be some circumstances and situations where that's not going to be the thing that we need to do. We're not all medical doctors, please, friends. I might say, is there a doctor in the house? Not all of us are doctors in the house. But he does draw near to the place of the man's woundedness, which might look like in our lives to sit on the mourner's bench with people. Is that when folks are crying, to not want to automatically offer a word so that they stop doing a thing that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might mean that sometimes when it would be easy to say, I'm going to pray for you or offer up thoughts and, uh, and consideration that I'm going to actually lament with you which is the things that make you sad, I'm going to also allow them to kind of disrupt and to discourage me or to cause me to also feel heavy. Over and over again within the scriptural tradition, there's this, this kind of this sense that um, when, when there are those who are rejoicing, we rejoice with them. When there are those who are weeping, we weep with them. Those are pretty powerful words because it's like, I'm going to actually like, want to feel a, a sense of whatever burden you are carrying. Some of us do this naturally because we are empaths. Some of us, it is not an easy thing. Like whenever we see something that is happening in another person's life that might be hard or heavy, it causes us to automatically want to fix the thing as opposed to sit with a person in the thing. 
Sometimes holding pain looks like listening to people's stories and believing people's stories or choosing not to be indifferent to the things that cause people harm. Then the third thing the Good Samaritan does is that he pays for him to stay at this inn. And he knows that even though he's not going to be able to be physically present with this man in his healing journey, tells the innkeeper, whatever you need to do for this man's well-being, I'm going to repay you, understanding that his healing is going to take a while. He basically invests in the flourishing and in the healing of this other individual, of this man. Recognizing that what has happened in the moment is a start, but that he's going to need to be journeyed with. And he wants to invest in that. We also too can invest in the flourishing of others. Every time we say we want to dismantle a system, we invest in the flourishing of others. Whenever we want to ask hard questions about the things that harm people, we're investing in the flourishing of others. Whenever we choose to show up for a person, not just in the moment, but two months, three months, four months, recognizing that to really be with one another is going to be not just a, a, a quick fix, but like for the long run. We say that we're in this thing together and that it's a journey. So how are you a neighbor? How are you a neighbor? Are you willing to draw near and be proximate to people? Are you willing to hold people's pain even when it feels a little bit uncomfortable or maybe not necessarily an understandable reality for you? Are you willing not just to show up in the moment but to invest in the long run, and the flourishing of others. My prayer is that you would say, I want to be a good neighbor. My prayer would be that when Jesus says, go and do likewise, that you also trust that you go and you do likewise, but by the power of a God who is a good neighbor to you. God who draws near to you. God who holds your pain. God who invests in your flourishing. So this morning, we're going to start to practice the muscles or to flex the muscles of being a good neighbor by offering up a prayer over those that we want to come alongside. This morning when Laura began our worship service, she came, began with like a blessing over us and she named all of the various ways that we might um, see people as our neighbors in our lives. I too am going to open up a time of prayer where I'm going to name those who might need us to be neighbors to them. And then I'm going to invite us in a time of silence, meaning I'm not going to be talking, that wherever you are, you also can lift up those that you believe need others to be neighbors to them. You can whisper it. You can say it with a mighty voice. You can say it with your heart. But this morning, we're going to go and do likewise. But we'll start by naming those to whom God is calling us to be a good neighbor.
Will you pray with me? Gracious God, in the first chapter of John's Gospel, we are reminded that the Word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. That Jesus, fully human and fully divine, came to be near to us. Came to hold and to heal our pain came that we may have life and life more abundantly investing in our flourishing from this life to the next. Gracious God, in Christ Jesus, you sent your son to be our good neighbor. And then you have also called us your people who are created in your image and also empowered by your spirit to be neighbors to others. So God, this day, we are praying that neighbors would come and walk alongside those who are feeling afraid that neighbors would come alongside those who are feeling incredibly burdened by financial stressors. That God, neighbors would come alongside those who have been affected by gun violence, that God, neighbors would come alongside those who feel as though their bodies are always being threatened by systems of oppression. And now I want to just offer this space for you to also offer who do you want to see neighbors come alongside? Gracious God, we know that you hear the cries of our hearts. 
that even our size you are able to translate as sweet prayers. And so God, we are believing that for all those who need, maybe for one of us to be a neighbor, that we might be reminded how it is that you come alongside us, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you are an ever-present God in times of trouble. That in our capacity, empowered by your spirit, we might be a neighbor to others as well. This, O oh God, we pray in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.